Welcome to our French Collection podcast, a go-to podcast for everything French. Hosted by me, Annette Charlton, with guests, candid insights into living in France, travel discussions and more, our show will transport you to the land of cheese and croissants. So now, let's dive into our next episode. Hey, welcome, bonjour, welcome to another episode from me, Annette Charlton, from a French collection. It's been some time actually since I've uh, sat uh, in uh, front of my microphone and recorded a podcast for you. Life has been crazy busy in a really good way. So a little bit about me if uh, you don't know too much. I live in Australia and I also live in France. So I have homes in Australia, in uh, New South Wales, and I have a home in Brittany, France. So traveling backwards and forwards between my two homes has uh, taken up a significant amount of my time. Some maintenance work and uh, minor renovations just cannot be uh, managed from a distance and so I've needed to be in France. So I've been spending typically three months at a time over there. Really excited now that I have two identical uh, podcasting stations in both home. Podcasting station is a fancy way of of saying that I have the equipment that I need in two of my small little offices. So now I'm set up to podcast in both locations, which uh, is going to see much more regular podcasting from me. So great to be behind the microphone. Great to be sharing a bit more of France with you. Maybe you follow me on socials, jump over to, if you don't, go and check out what I do, backwards and forwards, lovely photos of of France and my little village that I live in. All socials are a French collection, as is the blog. So lovely uh, to have you join me and hopefully we will uh, do more together. So today I have uh, a great podcast prepared for you about Mont Saint-Michel. It's super relevant because Mont Saint-Michel this year is celebrating its 1000 year birthday. I mean, significantly, where does that happen other than in France and Europe to have uh, a building and a location with so much history. Australia is such a young country in comparison that I'm always amazed at the uh, the immense amount of history that you can find as you travel through France. So Mont Saint-Michel, happy birthday, 1,000 years. I mean, what do you think of when uh, someone says, oh, Mont Saint-Michel or, uh, you know, the Abbey? It's in the region of Normandy, which uh, you may or or may not know, which is close to the region where I, I live. I'm in Brittany. You will have most likely seen photographs with its high rock dwellings and uh, maybe photos of the tides coming in and going out, the peaceful grazing sheep. I mean, it just looks incredible. It's a stunning sight and it draws many of us to, to go and visit it. Even the people in the Middle Ages, they believed that Mont Saint-Michel was pretty special. They firmly believed it was a representation of heavenly Jerusalem on earth, an image of paradise. It was. And I think actually some of us would agree with it. When we've seen the photos of the sun setting and the sheep in the background and the calm that seems to settle as the sun sets or the sun rises over the marshes, I think it looks quite a bit like paradise. What do you think? Situated on the border of Normandy and Brittany, 
If you were to go and uh, explore it yourself, you might consider staying centrally in Wren. Now, Wren is the capital of, of Brittany. It's about an hour and a half train ride from Paris. Uh, you can always stay in the area around the island, but Wren is also another option. Just putting it out there for you, that might work. You can also catch buses or you can hire a car to drive to Mont Saint-Michel if you are wanting to base yourself in Paris and head out for the day. So it's uh, Rennes is an hour and a half train ride from Paris and from Rennes you can catch a bus or you can drive yourself to the island. It'll take you about one hour. You could also stay fairly locally at uh, Saint-Malo. Saint-Malo is about an hour away, an hour drive. That's another stunning walled coastal town of the region. So another option again is to stay on the island itself. And that way you'll enjoy the peacefulness, the peacefulness that descends down once the crowds have left, the shopkeepers have gone home or they're slowly packing up for the day. This quietness descends on the island. And I've been uh, fortunate enough to experience that a couple of times. And it's the uh, the best way I like to uh, to visit the island. You can then walk the streets, sometimes almost on your own. You can stand around on the on the rampart walls and you can look over the terrace and you can watch the sunset it really is quite a spectacular day a way to end the day in this unesco world heritage listed site so the island is made up of the old town and the abbey the old town has homes That's right, people actually live on the island. There are homes, shops, cafes, there's the winding paths, the flights of stairs. There's also small private gardens which are attached to people's homes. And of course, some of those you can see as you're walking through the narrow lanes and up the flights of stairs. Just to let you know that this webinar, I I prepared this webinar for the uh, International Media Group, France Media Group, and it was really well received by their listeners and their followers. And uh, I've got all of the information in a blog post, like uh, show show notes for you over on the website. So you might like to check that out at um, afrenchcollection.com. So I'll also be sharing with you some practical details of where to stay, where you park your car and things that you would like to know should you be planning a visit to the island and to go and see the Abbey. The Bay of Mont-Saint-Michel, where the island is, it's been prone to silting up over the last couple of centuries. Together with man-made activities, including farming and the building of a causeway to the mount uh, for tourists, all added to the problem. Due to a major conservation project, they decided back in 2015 uh, they would help restore the island status to Mont Saint-Michel. The main river into the bay, the Couston, has now been left to flow freely so that sediments are washed out to sea and there's a footbridge. It's, re- it's replaced the former causeway. So this lets the sea come in and it more fully surrounds the island and particularly at high times it surrounds the whole island. Now, did you know that the tides in the Bay of Mont-Saint-Michel are commonly known as the most powerful tides in the world? 
The sea travels at an incredible 15 kilometres between its lowest point and Mont Saint-Michel, which is deep in the bay. This happens about four times a day, so it's a massive expanse for the water to cover. And that means that the water is almost constantly in motion. The tides can rise and fall by as much as 13 and a half metres. I mean, heck, that's a lot. If you've ever done any sailing, you'll understand that these tides are of phenomenal height. The mount dates back to about 1708, when Herbert Bishop of Orange had a sanctuary built on Montum in honour of the Archangel. The location soon became a major focus of pilgrimage. In the 10th century, the Benedictines settled in the abbey, while a village grew up below its walls. The village kept growing so much that by the 14th century, the village extended as far as the foot of the rock of the island. It was also a stronghold during the Hundred uh, Hundred Years' War, uh, and it's an incredible example of military architecture, even though it wasn't built uh, originally with a military uh, purpose. So during feuds with the English, the ramparts and fortifications were strong enough to resist all the English assaults. And this is actually how the mount grew into a symbol of national identity. Now, I didn't know recently, until recently, that the mount was a formidable prison during the French Revolution. Religious communities were expelled by Napoleon Bonaparte off the island to accommodate the revolution's prisoners. Later then, the island was classified as a historic monument. That was in 1874. And then it underwent major restoration work. And it's actually been going uh, undergoing regular work since then. I was over at the uh, staying on the island about six weeks ago. There was some minor work, restoration work being done. Listed as a World Heritage Site by UNESCO since 1979, the abbey is quite quite unique. It's not like any other monastery because it had to be built around the pyramid shape of the mount. The buildings are wrapped around the granite rock and they're built to very precise technical calculations. On the ground floor, the narrow side aisle of the cellar acts as a buttress. And above that, the supports of the first two stories are stacked on top of each other. Finally, the buildings get progressively lighter towards the top and the outside of the building is supported then by big powerful buttresses. Understanding that the layout and architecture of all the buildings was influenced by the guiding principles of monastic life and the constraints of topography is quite important when you look at it. The rule of Benedict is what the monks of the Mount observe and it dictates a life with days devoted to prayer and work. So therefore, the abbey is designed around that purpose and obviously around the uh, topography of the rock. The rooms are organised around the two daily activities of prayer and work and the principle of an enclosed order. Space was also exclusively reserved for the monks to respect this principle of the enclosed order. In keeping with that, the rooms on the ground floor and first floor of the Merville were set aside for receiving the laity. So just in case you're not sure what laity means, I uh, checked the definition in Wikipedia, which states, 
In religious organisations, the laity consists of all members who are not part of the clergy, usually including any non-ordained members of religious orders, for example a nun or a lay brother. The monks of the abbey observed the rule of Benedictine, stipulating the life of prayer and work, and that is still observed by Benedictines as well as other orders today. So actually, as far as the Abbey is concerned, there are 12 main areas that are open to you and I, and you'll find them as you walk upwards, climb upstairs, and you generally wind your way uh, upwards and then downwards through the buildings. There's a guard room, which is a fortified entrance. This is the where visitors would pass through to get into the Abbey before they would climb the grand stairs up to the terrace. Now, if you've been to this part or you plan to go to this, there are lots of stairs. So be prepared for many, many stairs. Some of the buildings between the church and the abbey date back to the 14th and 16th century. And they were the stately residence of the abbots, where the abbots lived. The West Terrace is where you'll get the most spectacular views of the bay. You need to look outwards and you'll be able to see the tides. There's often uh, seagulls and birds flying around, crows. You'll see the birds. Um, And if you look upwards, you'll see the neo-Gothic spire of the church tower. It's the, And then on top of that is the gilded copper statue of St. Michel. So the main part of the abbey, it's referred to as the abbey church, and it was constructed literally on top of rock. It sort of spans about 80 metres over the sea and it's built over quite a huge 80 metre platform. It has a nave which is covered with a wood panelled barrel vault which is actually over three levels. There's arches, galleries and tall windows. Maybe you've heard of cloisters as part of the uh, buildings in an abbey. Well, Mont Saint-Michel has a cloister too. It's a connection between the various buildings and it was used for prayer and meditation. The cloisters are also used for processions or were used for processions during religious festivals. The cloisters appeared to be built light in weight because they're on top of so many other heavy levels. And one of their clever features is that the double row of small columns, whichever way you're looking through the columns, you'll get a slightly ever-changing view. It's really quite extraordinary. So these cloisters are where you'll need to climb up to the top of the building, uh, the top of the building called the Merville, built in the 13th century. Under the cloisters is the Knights Hall, which as well as being built to hold up the cloisters was where the work and study room of the monks were. The refectory was where the monks ate their meals while they adhered to the rule of silence except for the one monk who was giving the reading from the pulpit as everybody else ate. Back down the hill, directly beneath the refectory, is the large guests' hall, and that was the hall that was used for receiving royalty and nobility. Coming further down the, down the hill, crypts were often designed to support the weight of the church or a chapel above, and it's the same at this abbey. The great pillared crypt supports the Gothic chancel of the Abbey Church and the Saint-Martin crypt built early in the year 1000 is the foundation for the south arm of the transept 
of the Abbey Church. The Archangel Michael, why is he chosen? Why is it his sculpture that shines in gold above the top of the spire? Well, he's the head of the heavenly militia, and he was of great importance to medieval religious worship. In fact, to the medieval man living, you've got to remember medieval man or women, they lived in expectation and dread of the hereafter. And it was St. Michael who was the one who led away the dead and he put their souls in the balance on the day of the last judgment. So he was very important to the their uh, way of thinking. And at about the time, around about the year 1000, many churches and chapels were dedicated to this saint and they were built all over Europe and they were often perched on top of hills or promontories. The reverence given to him was also deepened because of the way that Mont Saint-Michel was able to successfully hold out to the English. Because they were able to hold out to the English. He was seen as uh, being able to be the warlike angel who could fight. So today you can see if your eyesight's really good, maybe you've got a camera that's got a telescopic function. I would use that uh, to zoom in to see the statue of the saint. He's on top of the belfry, on top of the spire. Uh, It's very high up. So zoom in the best you can. And sometimes if you are there and the sun is shining, it'll almost look like it's glowing when the sun hits it. It's quite an amazing sight. Emmanuel Fromet was the uh, sculptor commissioned by architect Peter Grand, who thought that this statue would be suitable as a crowning glory for the 32-metre steeple. And uh, I think everybody that sees it really is in awe. In the old town, there's gift stores, cafes, restaurants. There's even a post office, so you can post a letter because there are residents that live on the island. So while they have a post office, most of their other everyday duties are done uh, off the island. There's museums on the island that you can go and see as well. There's a museum dedicated to knights and how the knights lived. With lots of people on the narrow lanes in the old part of the town, of course, also in the abbey, you might not actually see that there are these museums to visit. Jump online, have a look, maybe buy your ticket ahead of time if you don't want to miss out and you'll see what days and hours they're open. So there's more information of that in the uh, in the show notes. There's a historical museum. That's about the monks who built the abbey, the prisons, the periscope that discovered the bay, collection of ancient weapons, uh, torture instruments, and a person sinking in the quicksand. There's also the iron cage of Louis VI. There's a state-of-the-art museum. It's dedicated to the history of the tidal island because the tides are quite extraordinary. It takes you through the evolution of the life and culture of the island, particularly with it having its UNESCO World Heritage Site uh, listing. The Museum of the Knights is what uh, has interested uh, my boys when they were younger. So there's the uh, armies of the King of France. There's um, 
a mock bridal suite, there's period furniture, chastity belt, armour, and there's an astrology cabinet. And uh, it's just uh, quite interesting to uh, go and take a have, have a look at that. Best to get tickets, this is the practical information, best to get tickets uh, to the Abbey. You can uh, chance turning up and buying a ticket on the day. Much better to have pre-purchased a ticket. You can also pre-purchase your audio guide, which will help you understand more about it. Now, if you're going to arrive by shuttle bus or by uh, walking, you'll need to plan that before you actually get there. So if you're going to arrive by car, there is a lot of parking and all the car parks clearly show the way to the tourism centre and then clearly show the way uh, to the island. As soon as you get out of your car, you can either follow the signposts or you can follow the people. It really doesn't matter when you go uh, to the island, there's most likely going to be other people. The shuttle buses to the uh, island are free. You can also pay to go on a horse-drawn carriage or you can walk the last few kilometres via the footbridge to the island. I'm not sure if you knew, but the specially devised shuttle buses, they're called the Passeur. And uh, I would recommend that you allow 45 to 60 minutes from parking your car to walking through the gates on the island. Particularly in summer or on weekdays when school uh, groups turn up for excursions, it can significantly uh, take, a lot, uh, take a lot longer to get onto a shuttle bus to make your way uh, to the island. So do allow that time, particularly uh, remembering that the last admissions to the Abbey are about an hour prior to closing. If you want to explore the bay, do keep in mind that the tides of the channel, they change very, very quickly. During high tide, the island looks quite surreal. It looks as if it's like hovering above the water and in the right light, it creates this impressive mirror reflection. You might have seen photos on Instagram or on the net with this incredible reflection. I find that low tide is just as interesting with the stone walls rising sharply from the flat sand. At low tide, uh, you can walk around the perimeter and then you can look at it from a completely different uh, vantage point. This is, can be a bit dangerous though if you are not aware of the tides. So if you're going to take a long walk on the flat sands, it's best to book a tour with a professional guide. Now you'll see lots of groups that go uh, on walks with professional guides. They are very familiar with the uh, tides and can safely navigate the water. My top tip, if you plan to go on one of these walking uh, tours, Take a small microfiber towel or similar and a bottle of water. That way you can wash the sand off your feet and then you'll stop yourself uh, from getting blisters when you put your shoes back on with sand all over your toes because if you're then going to do a lot of walking, uh, that could be uh, quite uh, bad in creating blisters. Expect crowds, particularly uh, in summer, school holidays and on weekends, especially long weekends. But understanding that it's such an important place to visit, don't let the crowd stop you from enjoying Mont Saint-Michel yourself. 
In summer, you could choose to visit at the end of the day. This is another tip. The parking rate is reduced from 7pm and the Abbey can and uh, different parts of the old town can remain open till quite late. So it might be your choice that you explore it with slightly less crowds and in the evening summer weather. So just an option for you there. You can also get to the uh, mount by riding your bike. There are green paths for bike riding, designated bike uh, routes, and they're on former railway lines. So these railway lines and bike paths mostly keep you away from busy roads and towns, and they're pretty clearly signposted. So jump onto the show notes, the blog post, and you'll be able to get a link for more information on the bike paths and how to get to Mont Saint-Michel that way. So there's also some really uh, cool things about uh, the number eight. Number eight is quite closely associated with Mont Saint-Michel. I didn't know that myself. So everything began in the 8th century with the apparition of St. Michael, who is the highest ranked in the celestial hierarchy. In the Middle Ages, pilgrims named the Mont the 8th wonder of the world. And I understand that. I mean, yeah, the 8th wonder of the world. And the famous Madame Poulard, who created La Mer Poulard Restaurant and Hotels, she started her restaurant in 1888. And her cookies that are still produced today, you can purchase them at airports, you can purchase them in Paris, you can purchase them at her hotel and her restaurant. They still have the date stamped into them as a bit of a homage to the number eight. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, learning a little bit more about Mont Saint-Michel. Do jump onto the blog post where there are links to the hotels to visit the Tourism Office of Normandy, the Tourism Office of Mont Saint-Michel and uh, some cafes and also the museum so that you can purchase tickets and uh, go and enjoy Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy when you're next in France. And uh, let me say again that I'm so excited to have been able to share this incredible destination as it celebrates its 1,000-year birthday, um, particularly because I've gone to uh, visit it and stay Uh, on the island again, as I celebrated the birthday uh, of Mont Saint-Michel. And so that brings us to the end of another podcast and our time together. Thanks for listening. I've really enjoyed your company and I look forward to sharing more on France and all things French with you next week. Until then, you can head over to the blog at www.afrenchcollection.com for the full blog post. And so it's... um, Merci from me and à bientôt.